You're listening to the Tuesday Talks Podcast, your source of truth in communications, identity management, and technology. Coming up is a special takeover episode with a new guest host, Pierce Gorman, a distinguished technical staff member at Numerical and Telecom Industry Legend. He welcomes Eric Prieskowns, Chief Executive at Risk and Assurance Group and editor of commsrisk.com to debate the strengths and weaknesses of the current U.S. strategy for reducing robocalls that may be causing roadblocks for the adoption of global call authentication. Welcome to Tuesday Talks, a live discussion series where we bring truth and shed light across the branded identity in the communications industry. I'm Pierce Gorman, member of the Numericals technical staff, here to do a Tuesday Talks takeover as your host for today. The last Tuesday Talks podcast billed me as the industry legend Pierce Gorman. I am not a legend in my own mind, but I am Pierce Gorman, and I worked for more than three decades at Sprint and T-Mobile, with most of the last eight years focused almost entirely on standards, regulation, governance, and implementation of store shake and call authentication technology. I've been a member of all three of the FCC's Call Authentication Trust Anchor Working Groups, as well as a member of the U.S. Telecom Industry Association's Traceback Group, and the ATASIP Forum Joint Task Force and IPNNI that wrote the Shaken Standards and the Secure Telephone Identity Governance Authority Technical Committee, also known as the STIGATC. Lastly, I was the lead network design engineer at Sprint, responsible for the design and implementation of Sprint's stir, shake, and call authentication infrastructure, and was privileged to continue work on advanced use cases for call authentication at T-Mobile. Our guest today is Eric Prieskounts, the Chief Executive Officer of the Risk and Assurance Group and Editors of ComsRisk. Welcome, Eric. Can I encourage you to describe a little about yourself before we dive into today's topics? Well, thank you, Pierce. I don't know what else you can say. You've already given the titles away. Uh, Otherwise, I'm just known as being generally a troublemaker in the industry, always flapping my big mouth and saying what I think about things. We started ComSwiss back in 2006 and said a lot of things in the meantime about what I think is going right and what's going wrong in the way we manage risk in the industry. So I'm very grateful that you've, have, that you've invited me to join you on the show today, Pierce. A lot of people wouldn't go near me with a barge pole, so I'm very, gra- I'm, I'm very grateful indeed that you are prepared to have these conversations with me and talk to listen to both sides of the argument when it comes to these kinds of things. Yeah, very, very happy to have you here, uh, Eric. You know, you're, uh, as I've teased you, I think of you as the gadfly of Athens, you know, Socrates, the guy that comes and challenges people to understand what is truth and let's not corrupt the youth. So, um, you know, you have been outspoken about the stir shaken technology, I'll say implementation within the United States, uh, some of the challenges that uh, you've seen that you you think that there are some issues that people should be thinking about. And I was wondering if I could uh, ask you to review the the top few issues and concerns on your mind about stir shaken technology and, and its implementation, regulation, etc. Well, it's fair to say that I've said a lot of things about stir shaken, so it can be quite hard to condense it down to a few points. But there's three broad themes in terms of areas that I think people need to look at again with stir shaken and the U.S. strategy for reducing robocalls in general. The first of those, we could say, is a a theme that's been dominant throughout my entire career, which is that a lot of effort can be put into detecting a problem, detecting the source of a problem, finding the root cause of a problem. Sometimes, in the telecoms industry in particular, we find that people put so much effort into detecting the problem 
they don't know what to do after they've detected the problem, or they run out of steam, they run out of energy, they run out of resources, they lack the enthusiasm, or they just allow themselves to be distracted by the task of continuously looking for the problem, that they never get around to resolving it, taking action, addressing the root cause of the problem. And I think that is an issue with the US strategy for reducing robocalls. I don't want to besmirch stir shaken as a technology. I think the technology does what the technology is supposed to do. The question is, how does it fit into a strategy? And I think that there is a problem in to the extent to which does it actually dovetail into the kind of action that needs to be taken to address the source of robocalls. So one could say there's two ways, I think. I think there's a confusion between two ways that stir shaken can be used in practice. One of those ways that stir shaking can be used, and I know that you speak highly of the success of stir shaking in this particular area, is the extent to which it's used to trace the origins of a bad call. And I think that makes perfect sense that you could implement stir shaken to trace the origins of a bad call. But are, are people in power prepared to actually take action when they've identified where that bad call is coming from? Are they prepared to penalize, punish, in some way, deny that person, that business, the opportunity to re-enter the telecoms ecosystem, perhaps under another name, another front. The other way in which stir shaken may be seen to be of some use is in helping to modify the accuracy with which bad traffic is identified for use in automated blocking. And that's the area where I think the data shows it hasn't been so successful so far. And therefore, unfortunately, that's the area where it's easier in the legal framework in the US to see people taking action. So there's a bit of a mismatch between what can be done versus what the technology is doing well. That then leads to, to two more themes where I become critical. One of those is cost versus benefit. I'm not going to talk at length about the cost of stir shaken, but clearly people can have an opinion about whether it's the, um, shall we say, the least inexpensive or perhaps one of the more expensive ways of tackling this problem. And spending money is perfectly fine if you're getting benefits. If it's not dovetailing with the strategy, that begs the question about whether the money is well spent. It might be more appropriate to take more economical approaches to dealing with a problem. And then that lends itself to a third theme that I tend to explore, which is international cooperation, which takes us back again to whether the costs versus the benefits are lining up, because if the costs don't line up with the benefits, it's going to be difficult to persuade other people to follow the strategy. And also, if other countries are not following the same strategy, will that therefore enable the US to take the action that needs to be taken in order to deal with the root cause of the problem? So that, in a nutshell, as succinct as I could possibly do it, are the three areas that I think we've got problems with. But I know that you, Pierce, feel very strongly about trying to change the parameters for stir shaken and look at different ways that make the technology more useful on an international level, which is why I'm very gratified to hear that there are people like yourself working on trying to make the problem, make the solutions more amenable to uh, being operated across a global level. Yes, that's true. Boy, you've uh, you've covered a lot of ground. I uh, hope people are taking notes or are willing to listen to the podcast there's again. There's only half an hour. There's only half an hour. Yeah. 
I could, I could go on like one point for like half an hour, just bore everybody solid on that one point. So I'm trying to trying to cover all of the ground as quickly as possible. No, I don't. I don't think it's boring. That's for sure. And if we are, if we do as we've done in our previous conversations, we're not going to have any trouble eating up thirty minutes. Um, the one of the first things that you said was about uh, I'll, I'll use the theme of enforcement, right? So what's the strategy that the United States and uh, I'll just say the United States has in mind? Well, that strategy largely has to be determined by the FCC or they're the ones, you know, and Congress. They're the ones who uh, passed the trade, you know, Congress passed the Trace Act. The FCC issued mandates, multiple mandates, more on the way, I'm sure. Uh, and so the strategy has been to combat Ill illegal robocalling and one of the primary or key uh, things to do that with was um, Stir Shaken. And as you mentioned, Stir Shaken's uh, key value, at least in my mind, is that it provides the identity of the originating service provider. So in theory, if you have critical mass and all of the service providers in the U.S. are um, using the call authentication technology and unbeknownst to them, bad uh, callers originate calls on their networks. Their, uh, you know, the analytics that are running on the different, um, you know, downloadable applications on people's devices or the analytics that are available from the three major providers in the, in the uh, carrier ecosystem. So TNS, HIA, and uh, First Orion will identify those um, bad calls in one way or another, the information in the stir shaken signatures will be examined, they'll find out who did it, and then eventually, hopefully, enough information gets turned in through the industry traceback group and gets back to the FCC Enforcement Bureau or the uh, state's attorneys generals, which have um, all been collaborating on trying to combat illegal robocalling. Now, that's, I think, the, the general approach. The, the ironic thing about all this was Stir Shaken was supposed to, you know, the original idea of developing call authentication technology was to combat number spoofing, right? Which actually Stir Shaken is almost completely hopeless at being able to do in the United States. And it's because um, number spoofing is not illegal and it's used for lots of legitimate purposes. And because the signature is applied by the originating service provider, uh, you know, the, the number spoofing that might have occurred that is of uh, you know, most concern to the enforcement bureaus is illegal number spoofing. And by the time the originating service provider gets the call, that spoofing will have already been done. And so then it's on to them to understand, well, do I know enough about this call to think that the originator actually had the authority to use that number? Or do I not know that? And that comes back to the point about, well, what kind of an attestation should I put on this call to warn or inform the terminating service provider about the um, provenance of the calling number and the tr relative trustworthiness of the of the caller and that kind of speaks to your your comment about you know how useful or or how effective has stir shaken been in terms of using that uh, attestation level so um, having just you know skimmed over what the ideas were what the strategy was there there is a lot of, um, I would say, manual interconnections, right? There's like uh, manual, yeah, manual interconnections that have to go on um, between several pieces of that ecosystem. For instance, um, many of the um, call authentication verification servers at a terminating service provider are provided by a, uh, one vendor, whereas the analytics might be provided by a separate vendor. And this will certainly be true of 
um, most of the carriers in the United States. The large carriers, in some cases, they you know have reasonably good integration. The uh, or I presume they do. I only worked at you know two of them, but the uh, the small service providers who who are largely not required to deploy Sturshaken until um, June of next year uh, are probably certainly going to have. Uh, I shouldn't say certainly. I assume that they will have. Um, products that won't necessarily be, they, they may not even offer an analytics service, right? They might just leave it to their customers to down, you know, use Nomo Robo or whatever else, and all they'll have is a verification server. So the ability to tie the, um, you know, uh, identification of bad calls to the origination of the bad calls, there is a step there that's not necessarily a clean step. And then once you have done that and you feed this information back to the industry traceback group or to the enforcement bureaus, what are their abilities to sift through all of this, weigh it against all the rest of the stuff that they're already working on, and then, you know, bringing some sort of an action. And what do you do when the action is, you know, overseas? So it's, it's a tough nut to crack. I know that you're not, you are not fond of the phrase, it's not a silver bullet, but it isn't. Uh, so um, I will say, Okay, I'll make it quick. <laughs> I will say that it's still a foundational technology. You know, the deployment of Sturshaken, it's an experiment in the United States to see if Sturshaken will do what we want it to do. But just the ability to be able to send cryptographic signatures in a call, uh, you know, in call signaling, it's, it's, it's a massive accomplishment in the, in the U.S. industry. And I think that it will reap great benefits both in the United States and internationally, although, uh, you know, as you say, there are things that I think that need to be looked at um, that I hope will improve the way trust information is captured, distributed, made available for um, verification and, and improving trust in communications. So go ahead, Eric. Uh, remember what you were going to say. <laughs> the reason I don't like that, that phrase, no silver bullet, is I think it glosses over a really important question that needs to be answered and we don't have the answer. We can accept that there are multiple possible solutions to any problem, but that does not mean that you have a viable strategy if you throw resources at a lot of different possible solutions. You should be clear about where resources are being focused as part of a strategy for dealing with a problem. And I fear that phrase, no silver bullet, is used as an excuse for a scattergun approach to spreading resources. Well, a lot of different things are being done, and one can imagine strategies in which those things fit into the strategy, but because the resources are spread around higgledy-piggledy, you're not really focusing resources on any strategy that will be effective overall. That, that's my point with that phrase. And as I say, I want to come back to this notion of... I was thinking about how to explain this to an audience that doesn't know anything about the telecoms industry the other day. And I was thinking, one way to view, if you're receiving all these phone calls coming in and spamming your phone all the time and, and causing less frustration, one way, to, one way is to view this as being like some kind of dystopian future where you and the tiny bund of normal human beings survive surrounded by this enormous plague of crazy bandits in the desert who are running around 
driving the you know Mad Max scenario. Society is broken down, and they're all trying to get at you in your tiny little village that's still got a wall around it, and you're trying to maintain some kind of civilization. Or it could be that there's just five or six big criminals out there. Why are we all hiding behind a wall? Why don't we just go out and get them? Because if we get them and we put them out of business, we will have a lot less problem to deal with. And so one could view this as a kind of perimeter strategy, building a wall around your community to keep the bad guys out because there's so many bad guys and you don't know how to deal with them. Or let's go out and what I call the prosecution strategy. Let's go out, let's get the bad guys. And this links to the idea of whether you're going to take a strategy which is, say, focused on tracing the bad traffic to find where the origin is. And then the question is, what are you going to do when you find the origin? How are you going to punish the person responsible? Okay. Or the strategy can be, let's build up the walls. Let's build up the walls. And I think that lends itself to blocking. But if you go down that road of building up the walls, you are saying to yourself, when perhaps not pursuing the strategy of prosecuting the bad guys as much as we might do, because the effort put into building up these walls, you may be not fully understanding how many bad guys there are out there, okay? And yeah, you're building up the walls, but what in the end is your criteria for success? Because no blocking algorithm will ever be perfect. So to what extent are you prepared to accept that either good calls will be blocked or some bad calls will keep on getting through your perimeter? Because, you know, you don't need to talk about technology. The Great Wall of China is a great example of how you can put a lot of effort into putting a wall, but there's a lot of different ways you can subvert it, whether it's bribing a general to let you in or, or just ransacking and attacking a particular weak point in the wall. The danger with the perimeter strategy is it can absorb a lot of resources. And I would like to see the US more methodically pursue the prosecution strategy because I think the data does suggest there's not that many bad guys, but there is plenty of data to suggest the US keeps letting the bad guys come back again and again and again. So you're catching them. So here's another phrase people talk about, whack-a-mole. I don't think whack-a-mole is a good analogy because there could be lots of different moles. I think uh, the analogy that we're dealing with here is cat and mouse. I think the USA has now got another tool in its armory, stir shaken, but it was actually catching the mice before. Catching the mice, letting them go, they're coming back again. You shouldn't be surprised, therefore, at the scale of the problem. It's the problem is the release of the mice back into the environment, not the inability to catch them. And we can talk, I don't know how much time you want to talk about this, but we can talk about real-life examples where illegal robocallers have been caught already and they're being let off with no real penalty whatsoever. So I don't know if you want me to give an example for the audience, Pierce, because I'd love to. Yes, please, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, so, go Earlier this month, Roy Melvin Cox Jr. was cited as a result of the great work by the Traceback Group, identified as being one of the leaders of this consortium, this criminal consortium, that are said to be responsible for 8 billion illegal robocalls, mostly to do with car warranties, since 2018, which I did the maths, that would be 3.5% of all robocalls suffered by US consumers since 2018. They, they were saying in the in the notice, cease and desist letters to a whole bunch of telcos, telling them to block the traffic that's basically being created by Roy Melvin Cox Jr. 
and his, and his, uh, and his uh, accomplices, of which there are front organizations in Panama and in Hungary. Now, Roy Melvin Cox Jr. should be perfectly well on the radar for enforcement bodies because in January 2013, he was banned from all telemarketing activities. He reached a settlement with the Department of Justice where they, they agreed, he agreed to admit that he had broken the law, that he had used vague names to mask the caller ID, the origin of telemarketing calls, some of them for, call, some of them for car warranty type calls as well. He'd made calls to the do not call list. He had used front organizations in Panama and Hungary. So he's using exactly the same modus operandi back then as he's currently using now, but he was, a, he was banned. A monitoring regime was put in place where he was supposed to report on a monthly basis about all his business activities, all the associates he had around the world. And he was given a fine, a $1.1 million fine. Didn't serve any prison time, except he didn't have to pay the fine either. He just had to say, I don't have the money. So therefore, they said, oh, well, we're not going to make you pay the fine. So realistically, in 2013, he had no actual punishment all he did was he walked away and said, I will not do this kind of thing again and signed up to some kind of deal where people were supposed to be monitoring his business activities on a monthly basis for the next 20 years to stop him doing this kind of thing. And yet now we're back. The, the, the traceback group is having to do a lot of work to find these calls. Telcos are being to told to block these calls. Why has Roy Melvin Cox Jr. not been effectively taken out as a threat? He's clearly using the same modus operandi. There's probably not that many people with the insider savvy and the acumen to build an operation like this. So yes, there's the, the names of the accomplices have, different, have changed. The names of his accomplices in Hungary have changed. The names of his accomplices in Panama have changed. Well, who's clearly the mastermind of the operation? It's Roy Melvin Cox Jr. who's the mastermind of the operation. No real penalty. And the big question is now, Will there be any penalty this time? Because in May of this year, Mohammed Usman Khan was found responsible for tens of millions of illegal robocalls promoting cleaning services related, bogus cleaning services related to COVID-19. He spoofed CLIs. He made calls to the do not call list, very similar to what Roy Melvin Cox Jr. was doing. He was given a nominal $3.2 million fine. He said he couldn't pay it. So he doesn't have to pay it. He got no prison time and he promised not to do anything bad again. My point here is very simple. We are not learning from the past. And our message from the past is we sometimes see the F FCC, for example, announce enormous fines, calculating enormous notional fines that we know the criminals can't possibly pay. There's no real punishment. There's no real penalty. And that means there's no real deterrence no real reason for the criminals to change their behavior. They are going to just be recidivists. Why not? They make good money and they never suffer any real punishment. So my point about stir shaken is you can pour an enormous amount of effort into catching the mice, which is what stir shaking is doing. But if you're going to release the mice each and every time and there's no punishment, why would you expect it to ever change? And more crucially, why would you expect other countries to cooperate with the USA if the USA isn't dealing with, in the case of Roy Melvin Cox Jr., criminals within the USA, people who should be prosecutable. 
you know, those are, uh, those are good arguments and I don't really have any uh, counter arguments because I tend to agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, I do know from uh, anecdotal remarks made by Richard Shockey uh, that there's a real challenge in the um, Enforcement Bureau at the Attorneys General's and probably within the Industry Traceback Group, which is a small group of pretty, you know, hardworking, dedicated professionals um, to deal with how much information that they have coming in. And if you look at, you know, how many cases get prosecuted and how many make the news, it's not very many. And obviously there's billions of calls and they're not, uh, you know, it's not just from two or three guys. It's going to be more than that. But um, so I, I don't disagree with you. What I would say is um, there does need to, it does seems there, there would need to be some lobbying towards either state legislatures or federal legislature or both to try and put some teeth behind, um, you know, putting those criminals in jail. And this has come up before in conversations and there seems to be, and you know, maybe it's just my, my view of things and it's not a correct view, uh, that there seems to be reluctance to add criminal, um, uh, jail penalties associated with frauding using the telecommunications network. So as you as you mentioned, right, there's these, you know, multi-million dollar fines. I, I'm just so, I still want to say billion or trillion, you know, they could just make fine whatever size they want, right? One gazillion dollars, it yeah. doesn't matter. If you're, if they're not going to, if you're not going to make them pay and they can't pay, it's a, it's a ridiculous thing. It just makes them look foolish. So I kind of wish they would stop that part. Um, a few million dollars would probably suffice if they would actually collect it. But for sure, they should be looking at jail terms and encouraging other jurisdictions to have the same kinds of um, penalties. And I, you know, I wonder if other jurisdictions wouldn't be more more willing to. Um, so, I want to so, kind of so, transition. So, oh, go ahead. So, so for me, you know, the thing is, I want to see telcos pushing back. It's one thing to absorb the cost of stir shaken, but then it's necessary to push back and say we've got stir shaken. We're helping the traceback group now. We know it's difficult to do the traceback work to find these people. What are you actually going to do to deter the crime? And to be fair to Jessica Rosen Warsaw, who is now the chair of the FCC, is that she has spoken in the past about this problem of the FCC issuing large nominal fines, generating headlines, but never collecting. Never collecting because it's the Department of Justice that has to collect, and the Department of Justice never collects. She's spoken less about it since she's become chair because obviously it's less it's less politically appealing to talk about the problem when it's her problem as opposed to being her predecessor, Ajit, Jai's, Ajit Pai's problem. When it was Ajit Pai's problem, she would never shut up talking about this problem. Now she doesn't want to talk about it. But to be fair to her, she wants the lawmakers to change the law so that she's less reliant upon others to collect the fines. She wants the FCC to go out and collect the fines. So we can see that there's some appetite there, some bite to go out and penalise people. But it does mean the lawmakers have got to stop basking in all this reflected glory of millions being spent. And we do care. And we care deeply about our veterans. We care deeply about our seniors. We care deeply about the billions of dollars of harm being caused. Well, change the law. Change the law so that people can actually be properly prosecuted. Because the problem is we're not learning from this, these past mistakes where, as I say, we're catching them, we're letting them go. So to be fair to Jessica Rosenworcel, though she has to be more politically subtle about it, she does want to have a change in the environment. We can, we can, we can put more pressure on the politicians, is what I'm saying. Yep. Well, looking at our time, it looks like uh, 
we're not going to be able to move on to uh, other aspects that I wanted to cover. I'm so sorry. Probably I'm going... sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's quite all right. You want to talk uh, about a... blockchain and how you're going to use blockchain to <laughs> reduce the cost of this technology globally, which I love, by the way. Can you not, can you yes. not just do it in two minutes before the end of the show? Well, what I can what I can say is that uh, I did want to transition the the conversation to sort of the I look at it as being kind of a yin and yang uh, approach to using call authentication technology. So we've talked about how we try to use call authentication technology to um, identify and uh, punish the bad guys, but it can do more than that. You know, one of the the emerging technologies or emerging signature types is called rich call data which can um, help promote the good guys. So we can try and tamp down the bad guys and try and promote the good guys. Um, but the uh, technology, the key and certificate management technology that's used to support that functionality, I think is going to be challenged to scale at least internationally and I think probably domestically as well. And we can have a, another conversation about that. But I'm glad that you did raise the conversation, you know, the comment about um, blockchain, because one of the things that I know that you've worked on at the risk and assurance group is working on uh, a blockchain solution to help uh, service providers around the world um, share information that helps combat fraud. And I think that we could talk more about international uh, revenue share fraud and other kinds of uh, things that call authentication technology can be used for and work that's been done by um, different, you know, folks in the, like the uh, STIR working group at the IETF and, and uh, there you go. Well, we'd like to thank all of you for joining us today for another episode of Tuesday Talks. It was great to lead the conversation today after being an audience member and see what it's like to, to host. Eric, it was great to have you as my guest today and definitely plan on having more of these Tuesday Talks takeover sessions to continue our conversation from today. So be on the lookout for part two, which I'm sure will be coming soon. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tuesday Talks, your source of truth in the communications industry. This takeover series, hosted by Pierce Gorman, will return next month with Eric Prieskant to continue their conversation on global call authentication. So stay tuned for part two. The next live session will be on Tuesday, August 2nd, with guest speaker Scott Davis, CEO of Volley and Dealer Identity, to discuss identity and communications in the automotive industry. We hope to see you then.